New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. What is the purpose of evolution? There are many facets to our human experience that contribute to our understanding of what this means in our lives. From the day-to-day decisions we make to recognizing our current location in the 13.7 billion years of history that brought us to where we are today. An integral understanding of this question and the conversations we can generate with others around this topic can point the way to where we are headed as human beings in the universe. Steve McIntosh is a leader in the Integral Philosophy Movement and author of the books Evolution's Purpose and Integral Consciousness. He is also a co-founder of the new think tank, the Institute for Cultural Evolution. In addition to the think tank and his work in philosophy, Steve McIntosh has had a variety of other successful careers, including founding the consumer products company Now and Zen, practicing law with one of America's biggest firms, working as an executive with Celestial Seasonings Tea Company and Olympic-class bicycle racing. He is a graduate of the University of Virginia Law School and the University of Southern California Business School. He now lives in Boulder, Colorado with his wife and two sons. Join us for the next hour as we explore the science, philosophy, and spirituality of evolution's purpose with our guest Steve McIntosh. I'm Glenn Sabera. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Steve, welcome. Thank you, Glenn. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Great to have you. Let's jump right in here. I think we should start with sharing an understanding of what evolution is. The common understanding has to do with what Darwin offered and what many of us learned in school, but you also bring forward many other ways of understanding a complete picture of everything that evolution touches, not only in biology, but almost every discrete discipline that we're aware of. Can you highlight for us what components of evolution we need to understand for this conversation? Sure. Well, I define evolution as the universe's ceaseless process of becoming. Ever since the beginning of time and space and matter and energy with the Big Bang 13.7 billion years ago, the universe has been complexifying. There's been this sequence of emergences. Right? The Big Bang itself is this you know, amazing emergence of everything. And in some ways, even though immediately after the Big Bang, there was simply the hydrogen debris, the simplest forms of atoms. But gradually, through the process of what scientists now call emergence, something more keeps coming from something less. In other words, from hydrogen, we, the, the, there's this process of nucleosynthesis, hydrogen, a little bit of helium. It starts to complexify. New atoms begin to emerge. 
Indeed, we can kind of understand the periodic table of elements as a kind of a fossil record of cosmological evolution, as it's called, uh, the evolution of, of matter and stars and planets prior to the appearance of life. Then, after billions of years of cosmological evolution on this planet and likely elsewhere in the universe, a kind of a second Big Bang occurs, a another uh, unexplainable emergence, which is building on the emergences that have come before. Life emerges, and with it comes a kind of a new domain of evolution. You know, cosmological evolution, according to physicists, kind of unfolds through its own um, sort of downhill reactions, just as sort of the, the uh, entropic interaction of the elements produces first-generation stars and second-generation stars with their planets. But this is sort of a deterministic unfolding, at least as it's understood by science today. But with life comes almost new laws of physics. With the emergence of life, with that emergence comes this uh, amazing feature which is found nowhere else in the material universe, and that is purpose, agency. Life strives to survive and reproduce. And this striving is a new kind of form of causation, right? The intentionality of life is really underlying all forms of biological evolution, because if, if uh, life wasn't striving to survive and reproduce and fill up every niche, there wouldn't be any competition for natural selection to act upon. So Darwin's theory of natural selection in biology sort of presupposes this intentionality with all forms of life, and the emergence of this intentionality, of course, is just like the Big Bang itself. It's kind of a second Big Bang, right? So it's sort of completely unexplained, and it inaugurates a new uh, domain of evolution that uses new techniques of, of development. But there's a even though there's a discontinuity, between the evolution of matter and the evolution of life, the continuity is found in the fact that the, the, the accomplishments of earlier levels are taken up and used. So the accomplishments of the, the cosmological evolution, the creation of a solar system with you know, a water planet, right? that's, that's an evolutionary accomplishment, and we can characterize it as such because it, it becomes extremely valuable for life. Life could not evolve, at least as we know it, except for a water planet. So that, that achievement of you know, an amazing accomplishment through downhill reactions of cosmological evolution creates this platform which life then uses to build upon that platform. So we can see it at the macro level, you know, as the biosphere comes to envelop planet Earth, but we can also see it at the micro level as well because at first there were only atoms, only physics. And then atoms complexified, so we had a higher form of organization, molecules, right? We moved from physics to chemistry. And, and you know, molecules contain atoms. They, they transcend but include atoms. Then the next level of organization is life's cellular structure, right? Cells contain molecules. They use molecules. They use atoms, but they transcend them, even as they're including them within their own structure. So life is this kind of second domain of evolution. And, of course... Science tells us that through the process of natural selection, life uh, continues to complexify. But there's still this process of emergence, right? Something more keeps coming from something less. And as I carefully argue in the book, Evolution's Purpose, natural selection doesn't explain completely all the forms of emergence. There's so much truth in, in this understanding of what the universe is and what it's doing that, that it, it forms like a spectrum of truth. And at one end are, you know, scientific facts. But at the other end of this 
this understanding of how the universe came to be are, are spiritual truths. You know, evolution has a spiritual message. For me, this was a great part in the book that as you were writing about emergence and transcendence, you were also calling upon it, building the scientific evidence here. And you called the purpose here moving from first-order purpose to second-order purpose yeah. that humans possess as part of the evolution. Right. That's a perfect um, uh, framing of, of the message because the, 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 for, for years, scientists tried to reduce life, reduce biology to physics. Right, that that's the sort of standard method, or reductionistic method of, of science, and it, and it's achieved a lot of uh, a lot of understanding, a lot of breakthroughs that come through reductionism and strict naturalism, and so you know this is something we need to honor and respect, of course. But the 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 element of life which science, at least many biologists, have fully have yet to fully come to grips with, is that the main thing that distinguishes life from non-life is this momentous emergence of purpose or, or agency, as it's called. And even the most uh, simplest, the simplest forms of life exhibit this agency. Even though it's genetically pre-programmed and semi-autonomous, even the most primitive prokaryotes will exhibit uh, the agency of, of, like if you if they are in a glucose gradient and you, you, know, you put sugar in the glucose gradient, the bacteria will swim toward the glucose. And if you put a toxic substance, they'll swim away. They exhibit this, uh, this spontaneous um, ability to strive and to choose and to try, even at its most you know, primitive level. But as life evolves, purpose in life quickens. And you know, animal consciousness becomes more robust, and they're able to solve problems creatively and, and uh, exhibit uh, behaviors like loving their offspring that you know, are clearly uh, uh, forms of, of, of higher purpose within animals. But then we come to... What, what has been called by uh, the philosopher Holmes Ralston the third big bang, right? The, the momentous emergence of, of human consciousness, self-aware human consciousness. And so if we can characterize uh, the, the main difference between matter, the evolution of matter, and the evolution of life is that life contains what we might call quasi-purposiveness purposiveness or, or semi-purposiveness. I mean, animals have purposes, but they're not fully self-aware of those purposes. They're, in a sense, responding to instincts. But with the emergence of human consciousness, we gain what might be characterized as second-order purpose. Humans have purposes for our purposes. We can have life-changing purposes, purposes that, that, take, that make the world a better place for everyone, you know, compassionate, loving purposes. Our purposes are kindled by our understanding that we can make things better. You know, this was uh, observed by the famous sociologist Emile Durkheim in the 19th century. He said that, you know, animal needs can be relatively satisfied once their physiological, you know, urges are taken care of. But human needs, in a sense, can never be satisfied because as soon as one level of needs is satisfied, humans awaken to a new, a new way of, of making things better. And that's what... What, what, according to science, what drives the evolution of matter, what drives cosmological evolution is this sort of entropic unfolding, the downhill deterministic reactions of matter and energy. What drives the evolution of, of biology, according to science, is random mutations and environmental selection. But what drives this third domain of evolution, this new category of evolution that emerges with human consciousness, is humans are trying to make their world a better place. They're trying to improve their conditions. And the most dramatic ways that humans have improved their conditions is by improving their definition of improvement itself. 
In other words, we see that this sequence of emergence, where something more keeps coming from something less, continues in the realm of human cultural evolution, because humans, uh, they, they have these worldviews, these, these definitions of, of what is beautiful, true, and good, and these worldviews uh, show this same pattern of emergence, where they're building on each other and uh, becoming more complex. And our, our relationship to the primary values of truth, beauty, and goodness evolve. Is it, uh, is it easy? Is it a bunch of people getting together and said, let's move on to the next stage? What's that process like? No, there's, there's a, a pattern, a structural pattern that you can find throughout all forms of evolution, but it's particularly dramatically expressed in this realm of human consciousness and culture, uh, the psychosocial evolution of humanity. It's characterized by a pattern as we're trying to make the world a better place, we're trying to improve conditions based on the problematic life conditions we encounter in our time in history. And as we improve that set of conditions, we then awaken to a, a, a different or higher set of, of, of conditions or a higher definition of improvement. Tribal aesthetics, tribal wisdom, uh, tribal practices are uh, informing and being kind of carried forward into much of progressive culture. Now, the next, a, a, a new opportunity that's arising on the horizon of history to try to make the world a better place, to, to improve our definition of improvement, is to try to reach back and do the same with all for, previous forms of culture, not just tribal culture, but traditional culture, you know, and modernist culture. And, you know, the achievements of our ancestors can be carefully teased apart from their pathologies and their shortcomings, and this offers, offers uh, you know, a new way forward into a, a more inclusive and uh, compassionate Form of culture. Wonderful. I'm here with Steve McIntosh. He's the author of Evolution's Purpose, an integral interpretation of the scientific story of our origins. My name is Glenn Sabera. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Steve McIntosh. He's the author of Evolution's Purpose, an integral interpretation of the scientific story of our origins. Steve, I want to hear more about how we feel this evolutionary impulse with inside ourselves. What drives us to evolve? Sure. The evolutionary impulse is, in a sense, what makes us get up in the morning. And, and it's, it's what makes us want to uh, make the world a better place at its highest level. It, but it also gives us a direct uh, phenomenological connection with the purpose that's found throughout the entire spectrum of evolution, right? In other words, we spoke earlier about how uh, life has the purpose to survive and reproduce. This is actually a value for life. Life is, uh, as defined by the, the famous biologist Lynn Margulis, life is matter that chooses. 
And this, this choosing, this striving is animated by values. In a sense, values enter the universe, even at the most primitive level of life, because of this agency that life possesses to, um, to, to strive for this primitive form of goodness, which is surviving and reproducing. And we can feel within ourselves as humans this same striving of life as we have our own biological urges. You know, we, we get hungry, we get sleepy, we want pleasure, you know, we, we, we can feel these urges within ourselves, but, but this, this internal feeling, this impulse to evolve is uh, not only within us at a biological level, because we embody uh, this, this additional level of evolution, right? You know, we, we embody cosmological evolution because our bodies are made out of atoms and molecules, right? We embody biological evolution because, of course, we're biological beings. But because we ha participate in this third domain of evolution, the evolution of consciousness and culture, we're able to uh, transcend our biology, even though, you know, we obviously have a duty to protect the environment in every way, we... Uh, embody a level of evolution that's not directly tied to our bodies. So, for example, in order for the, the consciousness of an animal to evolve, it has to evolve its biology. Its consciousness, in a sense, its intelligence evolves in lockstep with its biology. But with the advent of humanity, we're able to liberate ourselves to a whole new level of evolution through the evolution of our consciousness. Because we can uh, create language and culture and artifacts and connections and institutions, these kind of stand in for the lack of appreciable biological development in the last, you know, 10, 20,000 years, our consciousness is able to uh, evolve in ways that are, that are free from biological determinism. It takes our understanding of evolution from the exterior to the interior. Right. We realize that evolution is not just happening on the outside, it's happening on the inside, and we can feel it in the form of this evolutionary impulse, because not only can we feel the impulses of our biological selves, we can also feel, you know, most of us, many of us can feel... Uh, what Plato actually recognized as a sort of eros toward the beautiful, the true, and the good. And these values, in a sense, have a gravity on consciousness. You know, the, the, the more we evolve our consciousness, the more we can feel the pull of the beautiful, the true, and the good, the desire for spiritual experience. And it's by, um, by experiencing and creating these values that we not only evolve our consciousness, but we make the world a little bit more evolved. In other words, the... the Cultural evolution is about improving the human condition. And the, the, the improvement of the human condition is defined by that which is beautiful, true, and good. And so humans throughout their history have been not only striving to make conditions better, but as I said earlier, that this, this, the, the, these, this frame of what is beautiful, true, and good has been experiencing its own sequence of emergence, right? So we move from uh, estimates of the beautiful, the true, and the good, for example, Goodness, we see this evolution of, of the, the circle of those worthy of moral consideration. In, in, the, you know, more, uh, in earlier times in history, in Stone Age conditions, those worthy of moral consideration were largely the clan or the tribe. It was sort of a, a family-centric definition of morality. Then with the emergence of the great religious civilizations, uh, those who were worthy of moral consideration was extended beyond kinship groups to include those who were of the same faith or the same religion. And sort of ethnocentric forms of morality is something that we kind of condemn in progressive circles today, but this actually was a significant improvement because it allowed the circle of moral consideration to be drawn, you know, around a larger coherent group. 
So that through through either stage, every stage of this evolution, this gravitation towards the good, beautiful, and true existed. But what shifted, what evolved, was the relationship of each culture towards these fundamental values. Sure. In other words, as 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 people's definition of improvement becomes fulfilled, as uh, as as the needs of a given stage of culture are satisfied, humans begin to awaken to a higher form of needs. It's almost like uh, you can see Maslow's hierarchy of needs writ large upon human history right. as uh, self-actualization becomes defined in new ways, right? So self-actualization at the traditional, as it's defined in, in the integral dialogue, a, a traditional stage of consciousness involves uh, you know, being faithful, being a, you know, a good member of your society. And these are important values that we want to carry forward into the future. These are these values were really intriguing to me as I was reading. I was wondering what's missing here. You know, why isn't compassion in this list? Why not forgiveness, kindness, and especially why not love? Sure, in, is not included in this triad. Sure. Well, I, I spent a lot of time describing and explaining this in the book, and the the idea of the beautiful, the true, and the good as uh, primary values or descriptions of the most intrinsic forms of value has a long philosophical pedigree. Of course, it can be traced back to Plato in the 4th century BC, but it's been carried forward by thinkers and sages in both the East and West um, you know, for the last 2,000 years. There have been many different philosophers and, and um, spiritual realizers who come to see that the beautiful, the true, and the good, in a sense, are, are the, they're the comprehensible elements of deity. Right? They're actually the ways that the world is made a better place. And so love is certainly part of the equation, right? Love is, in a sense, a form of goodness, right? Love is the desire to do good to others. So understanding that, that values do have a gravity, that they're, they're, they're neither completely objective mm -hmm. nor completely subjective, right? They're, they're not uh, just waiting to be spotted like material objects, but they're not completely subjective either. In other words, the universe has a dynamic quality. And as our consciousness evolves, we come to see this dynamic quality in the universe with new depth and clarity. And so it's not linear, but there is, in a sense, a magnetic center to which all values are moving, right? I like to use the analogy of colors. Uh, you know, we can, the colors on your computer screen or TV screen, the, the visible spectrum of colors are made up with red, green, and blue, right? And, and these three colors combine and, and, and are, can be used to produce the entire spectrum. And so through the philosophical analysis of the ages, the beautiful, the true, and the good have become conceptual labels that have been used to name this system, this magnetic center of dynamic quality, which attracts consciousness and therefore has a kind of a gravity of evolution on the inside. You know, it's not overly metaphysical or mysterious. The gravity of values is something we can all feel through this evolutionary impulse we've been talking about. Right. Excellent. And... In order to keep understanding this and looking at this to tease out the meaning of evolution, we've hit upon science, we've hit upon philosophy, and also the, the you call it the third, three leg stool. The three legs of the, the stool. The, the, the third leg is spirituality. And this, I believe, ties into the, the, the definition of purpose that you have, which is specifically that it's, it's not predetermined, that, that it itself is unfolding in a way. Sure. And that's what, that's what allows us to bring in this third leg to the stool. Right. In the book, I argue that the purpose of evolution is not uh, imposed from outside, it's arising from within, right? So we can see, for example, 
in in the in the as scientists have have un, unpacked and discovered uh, the dimensions of of cosmological evolution, increasingly they find these uncanny instances of what's been called fine tuning. Right, that that the cosmological evolution from the Big Bang onward appears to have these uncanny coincidences that seem to make the universe just fit for life. And so we might see in that, we might interpret that as, in a sense, a purpose for evolution. But if we want to find purpose in evolution, we need to look to the presence of life and its inherent agency. In other words, that's what makes life life, in a sense. That's why it can't be reduced to matter, because it has this agency or purpose. But if we want to go beyond the purpose for evolution or the purpose in evolution, mm. and we want to discover the purpose of evolution philosophically and even spiritually, then we need to look within ourselves and, and begin to understand that to be human is to know what it feels like to be evolution happening. Right? Evolution is working through us. And so our purposes to make the world a better place, our purposes to live up to our potential and do the right thing, you know, our purposes to be compassionate and loving and do good this is what this is how we get in touch with the the more spiritual aspects of evolution's purpose because we can feel it within us and we know from our own direct experience that it's inherently teleological and purposive and you you make the case that this is a relational experience that we as a group are having this evolution uh, but just now it sounded like you're talking about an individual evolution is that pointing towards something well, there well well consciousness doesn't evolve by itself. Mm -hmm. it, it co-evolves with culture, right? Consciousness and culture co-evolve together. And uh, there's an interior element and an exterior element. And uh, this unfolding, this, this, this understanding which integral philosophy is bringing to the realm of cultural evolution is helping us understand how cultural evolution happens, why in some places it's stuck, why in some places it, it you know, it, it, it uh, uh, spins out of control. Why we live in a world of trouble and suffering, despite the fact that we've achieved, you know, all these blessings of modernity and, and you know, tremendous uh, progress, which again, that's a loaded term. It's got historical baggage and it's something that I uh, try to carefully distinguish from uh, earlier ethnocentric notions of cultural superiority. I, I think it's important to also have that part of the conversation uh, as we're talking with scientists. Mm -hmm. uh, as well. That's where they want to go. And you, you started talking here that each part of these stages and their paths have their own pathologies that they're bringing to the table that, in a sense, sets up the evolution for the next stage. Sure. So as we, as we look at human history and we see the horrors of history, it's easy to conclude that we're not really making progress, that things aren't getting better. Because every time we try to improve conditions... We introduce new problems, new pathologies. So, for example, the emergence of modernity, right? The, the, the scientific-based modernist worldview that's resulted in the global civilization of the developed world. This, of course, has brought uh, many benefits, which we all use, whether we you know uh, acknowledge it or not. We're all using the benefits of modernism if we're, in a sense, listening to this conversation. But with modernism has come threats to the planet that no worldview before or since has ever created, right? We have, uh, you know, environmental degradation and global warming, which threatens, you know, the entire biosphere. We have, you know, nuclear pr proliferation. We have uh, a, a world of, of, of 7 billion people, many of whom are, are you know, hungry and starving. So the, the developments of the, of the last 300 years have created pathologies in the world that make many despair about our ability to make the world a better place uh, to begin with. But... This new understanding of evolution that's brought about by integral philosophy, 
which I argue for in the book, I think can restore our confidence uh, and our hope that the world can be and most likely will be uh, evolved toward a better place, toward more beautiful, true, and good conditions over time. I'm here with Steve McIntosh. He's the author of Evolution's Purpose, an integral interpretation of the scientific story of our origins. If you'd like to be in touch with Steve or want to learn more about his work, you can go to his website, stevemackintosh.com. That's M-C-I-N-T-O-S-H.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. My name is Glenn Sabera. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Steve McIntosh. He's the author of Evolution's Purpose, an integral interpretation of the scientific story of our origins. So we're talking about how this evolutionary perspective can actually restore hope to the condition and where we are in today's times. Where is it taking us? Sure. Well, we're, we're beginning to see that the developed world that we live in, you know, that the modernity has both important achievements important freedoms, um, you know, important technological advances, you know, the improvement of our standard of living. But with that has come tremendous threats to the world, global warming, you know, a nuclear proliferation, as we've discussed. And when we come to understand human history as an authentic form of evolution that has these series of emergences that build on each other, right? Something more keeps coming from something less. We begin to understand how these emergences occur, in other words, human cultural evolution is being driven by humans trying to improve their conditions. And in a sense, uh, the pro, you know, people were all alive here at the same time in history, but not all of us live. Uh, you know, it, people live all over the world in different times in history because they, their culture is working to solve problems that have occurred in, in, you know, throughout human history, which those problems still exist all over the world. And so, in a sense, the problems of, our, of your culture, the problems of your age, define the opportunities for evolution. And you outline this as the, the dialectic spiral. Indeed. The yeah, there's a, there's, the it's sort of like a sailboat tacking against the wind, mm -hmm. right? A sailboat can't sail directly into the wind. It has to advance obliquely. And the same way uh, that human conditions are improved is that w the problems are, in a sense, created by the received culture, right? So the problems of the culture, the problems of modernism, the problems of our developed world, in a sense, have defined the opportunity for us to make the world a better place. We want it to be more environmental. We want it to be more uh, compassionate. We want it to be more holistic. We want to have. We don't want to have a you know completely uh, materialistic worldview. And, and so much of progressive culture over the last fifty years has made important strides in terms of its own cultural evolution. But when we understand that many of the conditions for improvement that define new worldviews or new sets of values are, in a sense, defined by what's wrong. There's this natural capacity to go too far in the other direction, which then the sailboat has to tack back again, right, to correct. And so there's this dialectical spiral that can be seen in the structure of, of human cultural development is, is as a result of this natural dialectic, the thesis, antithesis, and synthesis, which is really uh, the master pattern of evolution overall. As I argue in the book, you can see this pattern in cosmological evolution and biological evolution that continues 
in cultural evolution, it's almost like the, the law of development where you have uh, tension and the tension is re resolved in a kind of a synthesis. You know, another way to describe this pattern, this dialectical pattern, is transcendence and inclusion. Right? Each one of these layers of emergence keeps transcending and including. Um, and in a sense, now, our opportunity for improvement to go beyond the limitations of progressive culture. But progressive culture has been excellent at defining what's wrong and, 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 and describing how we can make the world a better place. But because in some ways it's in a position of antithesis to the larger society, the opportunity to try to reach back down and include some of the healthy values and some of the achievements of these earlier levels, that presents a new opportunity for improvement, which is where the evolutionary worldview is, is headed. And if we were to look in a history book, could we have a reading of history and understand that there were key players or movements or, or areas of the world that led from one worldview to the next? Sure. These are easily identifiable. And are we in one of these now? Well, certainly we argue for that in integral philosophy. Um, that is, the, these emergences in human history, these emer like, like the, the emergence of uh, the traditional religious worldview, that much of it emerged in the Axial Age in the 5th century BC. We can see many of the great world religions coming to the fore. We can see in a major emergence during the, uh, the European Enlightenment of the 17th and 18th centuries, right? We can even see an, an emergence of a progressive worldview, which begins in the 19th century, but sort of comes to fruition in the 60s and, you know, becomes a significant part of the culture of the developed world. Each one of these new worldviews is its own kind of emergence. And what emerges with, what, what makes these an authentic form of evolutionary emergence is that they frame reality in a larger way. They're more inclusive. They have new truth, new beauty, and new ideals of morality. You know, I mentioned earlier how we, we, we've seen in human history this movement from, uh, you know, sort of family-centric morality to ethnocentric morality, then a kind of a nationalistic morality. And now with the progressive worldview, a kind of a world-centric morality that, that draws the circle of moral consideration around all sentient beings. What does it take for somebody to recognize their location in their place of evolution? Is there resistance to someone wanting to know where they are? And if we know where we are, can we then guide our own evolution? Well, certainly. Um, when we begin to understand that, that the evolution of consciousness and culture is both um, driven and drawn by the quest to make things better, right? That's what the, this realm of evolution is all about, is the improvement of the human condition. And not only do we want to make the world a better place and improve our conditions you know, in our own uh, impulses, but we also are drawn by this kind of gravity of values, this gravity of the ontological quality of the universe, which we discover by stages in increasing, increasingly more complex ways. So uh, if you want to know where your cultural location is within this scale of, of evolution, you can see what your creation story is or what your values are. This helps define um, your location within the spectrum of evolution. And when you come to see that there is a structure in cultural evolution, just like biological evolution has a structure, cosmological evolution has a structure, integral philosophy's one of its great contributions is being able to see the internal structure of values and worldviews, which uh, accounts for uh, the evolution of human culture for the last uh, 10,000 years. And so if we're here at this stage with the emergence of the evolution worldview and knowing that there ultimately will be an antithesis for this, sure. do we know then what the pathologies are that we're dealing with as well as the resolution of the postmodern uh, resolution? Sure. Well, what, what creates the impetus for the emergence of a new stage of history or consciousness, a new, a new reality-framing worldview, 
is in a sense uh, the the success. Or in other words, because evolution is using this pattern of emergence where it's taking up and using the accomplishments of earlier levels, right? That's happens throughout the evolutionary process. We can see the same process occurring in the evolution of consciousness and culture, psychosocial evolution, as it's called. And so, in order for us to gain a, for example, a, a progressive postmodern worldview, we need to rely upon the success of modernism, right? It was it was out of the the you know the 1950s America that the youth of the middle class of America, the educated, they had already received all of the benefits that modernism had to offer, and they could begin to awaken to an, a new definition of improvement, or a new way to make the world a better place, right? Likewise, even though postmodernism, as it's used as a defined term, this mm -hmm. progressive worldview that emerges beyond modernism, even though that is still only about 20% of the American population, even though it'll be throughout this century that that worldview continues to gain ground, we can also see that in many ways it's it's sort of stabilized as a coherent worldview, and uh, it's stabilized into this position of you know antithesis of sort of rejecting you know the mainstream and defining its values by what's wrong with what came before, which is evolutionarily appropriate. Mm -hmm. But we but because those of us who have lived within a kind of a postmodern or progressive worldview practically all our lives can recognize that the life conditions here at the beginning of the 21st century, especially in you know global problems like you know climate change. That these are beginning to uh, call forward a, 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 a new opportunity for improvement that transcends postmodernism itself, right? Another way of describing this evolutionary worldview that we're talking about, and that's giving rise to this philosophy that's animating my book, my books, is that it's um, it's 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 kind of post postmodern, right. and the way that it goes beyond postmodernism is it reaches down and includes the values of, of modernism and traditionalism, the values of earlier worldviews in ways that postmodernism has been unable to do. And what's what's emerging here now? What are we transcending into? We've included the best of postmodernism. Sure. And so so what does it look like? What are the values at this stage? Right. Well, every every worldview has its own unique values that it that is is sort of what makes it an authentic evolutionary emergence. And we can certainly identify uh, some of the unique values uh, of, of, of the evolutionary worldview, including an aspiration to harmonize science and spirituality, but not in a way that's superficial, not in a way that just cherry-picks science, but a way that really takes science on its own terms and wants to integrate that with a more spiritual understanding of the universe. Um, that's one of the important values of the integral, is, is taking science more seriously and taking spirit more seriously, in a way, to transcend the, the immature limitations of progressive spirituality. You make a point in the book, too, talking about uh, progressive spirituality pruning some of the necessary aspects in the 1970s, and, and here again we're at another level of so-called pruning. Sure. Well, mm. uh, yeah, in other words, that is, progressive spirituality has improved the lives of millions of people, and it, it continues to show vitality, you know, decades after it's, you know, first really kind of appeared as a social structure in the 1970s and kind of coming to fruition in the 90s. But it's still countercultural. It's still sort of uh, viewed with suspicion, by many in the mainstream. And uh, it also has immaturities, sort of an anything-goes pluralism, right? Many of the achievements of progressive spirituality are also woven together with shortcomings. And so what one of the aspirations of the evolutionary worldview is to try to help define a form of spirituality that can provide better leadership for the society. 
because many who are in the modernist worldview see a choice between either a regression to mythic forms of spirituality, right, traditional spirituality, you know, that doesn't really take science into account, or new age spirituality, which is, you know, has its own immaturities and, and, and although appeals to some and has you know, noble aspects, I think, which we've all appreciated. It, it, at this time in history, it's not providing the kind of spiritual leadership for the larger society that I think you know, we could all use as a form of spirituality that everybody can kind of appreciate. And that's where the spiritual message of evolution can be so um, in, enlightening because it, uh, we, we can see that, that this, this grand process of becoming that's been going on for 13 billion years that we can feel within ourselves has an unmistakable spiritual message of, of progress and purpose. And then when we understand, we begin to understand, you know, in a way that harmonizes with science, the fact that evolution is progressing and it, there is a purpose to it, even though it's you know, not externally imposed, it's kind of arising from within, this in a sense um, can act as a, a, a supplement for all forms of spirituality. It's not a replacement for, for, you know, different kinds of spirituality, but it can help sort of improve spirituality across the board and allow it to fulfill its larger mission to providing leadership. That, that's a key point. Let, let's look at how we got here with the dialectic. Uh, we traced a little bit through spirituality, and it's also to not remove philosophy or science when we're up here, too, that, sure. that each, each part has its own dialectic. Right. You that mentioned that earlier, and I mean, we'll return to that, and this idea of, uh, that science, philosophy, and spirituality are, in a sense, the three legs of the stool of the human approach to truth, right? And, and I argue that each one of these is sort of indispensable. And the stool analogy is useful because if it's a three-legged stool and the legs move too close together or they move too far apart, if they're not appropriately proportioned to each other, the stool falls over, right? So we know that that the scientific, the philosophical, and the spiritual are three authentic and irreducible approaches to truth because there are three kinds of human experience, right? There's the sensory experience upon which science is based. There's the experience of relationships and, and meanings that we come to through philosophy. And then there's spiritual experience, which can't be reduced to either of those two. And so in this attempt to try to harmonize science and spirituality without trying to conflate one into the other, Philosophy has a very important role of both bridging and separating these three great approaches to truth. I'm here with Steve McIntosh. He's the author of Evolution's Purpose, an integral interpretation of the scientific story of our origins. If you'd like to be in touch with Steve or want to learn more about his work, you can go to his website, stevemackintosh.com. That's M-C-I-N-T-O-S-H. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. My name is Glenn Sabera. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Steve McIntosh. He's the author of Evolution's Purpose, 
an integral interpretation of the scientific story of our origins. We've been talking about the value shift into evolutionary worldview, and I'm wondering what this has been response to from the previous worldview of postmodernism. Can you talk about that a bit? Sure. Well, within this emerging movement of integral philosophy, we're, we're talking about the evolution of consciousness and culture. And this form of evolution has structural elements because it's marked by these emergences, these jumps, right? These, there'll be periods of stasis, and then there'll be a spurt of creativity, just like all forms of evolution. These, these uh, sequence of emergences which build on themselves within this spectrum of human history, we have given names to them. They're, in a sense, defined terms, you know, carefully. Uh, I mean, I, we, we, tr we try to use words that, that mean what we're talking about, like traditional consciousness and culture and modernist consciousness and culture. But it's important for listeners to know that these are carefully defined and, you know, they're, it, it's hard to avoid jargon even at this level. So the most difficult of these terms is postmodernism, which has been used to define critical forms of academia or art movements. Indeed, the word, word postmodern is a kind of battleground of meaning. But because it describes, in a, in a sense, through its own meaning on its face, what we're talking about, we have adopted this term, and it's becoming in increasing use within this discourse, within evolutionary discussions, even though we always run the risk of people misunderstanding or, or thinking that we're, we're talking about a smaller subset. We're talking about a, a distinct form of culture that has emerged beyond the mainstream modernist worldview of the developed world. And we first came to really recognize this uh, form of culture through the important research of Paul Ray who in the 1990s published a, a sociological report uh, sponsored by the Institute of Noetic Sciences and the Fetzer Institute, uh, which really showed through you know, modern sociological analysis that there was this distinct block, this distinct demographic. Um, and it wasn't just a market, it was actually a worldview that could be distinguished from traditionalism and modernism. And this postmodern worldview, as you know, we talked about earlier, has values of environmentalism, multiculturalism, feminism. Uh, you know, it, it has a, a uh, an increased compassion for those who've been marginalized or exploited. And postmodernism has made the society better in many ways. Uh, you know, a, a tremendous example of of uh, a postmodern achievement has been the strides that have been made for gay rights uh, in the United States and elsewhere in the world in the, in the last uh, decade. So postmodernism coheres as a social structure, and so we can talk about it as a unique, historically significant emergence um, within an integral discourse because it helps us describe the, the contours of this, uh, this larger societal development that we're trying to describe and indeed facilitate. And within this discourse, we understand that the gifts or the values of the postmodernist uh, era also evolve from resolving the pathologies of the modernist principle too. But what I see too in, in the real world application, the ineffectiveness of this change at one level is that there might be an antagonism uh, from the postmodernist to the modernist. And so somehow taking approach that does include more than reject uh, what the modernist did offer. Sure. I mean, one of the conditions that we find ourselves here in, uh, in 2012, uh, especially in America, is that we have a polarized culture Right? We can see it um, in, in our politics. Uh, we can see every time we turn on the evening news, the culture war, as it's been called, is a, a feature of our culture. But this polarization that you know, is stagnating meaningful action in so many ways, ironically perhaps, comes as a result of cultural evolution. In other words, 
the emergence of postmodernism as a historically significant, politically significant worldview in the last 50 years has added to the polarity, you know, in evolutionarily appropriate ways, which then sort of defines an opportunity for improvement. That doesn't mean that we're going to try to bring everyone together in the center, right? Centrist politics has clearly failed, right? The, the, the way forward lies in, in a way that can integrate without regressing, a way that can uh, um, move beyond the horizontal spectrum of left and right within the political environment to a synthesis that can appropriately honor earlier levels in ways that the antithesis of postmodernism has so far been unable to do. Your, your key quote in the book is, the degree of our transcendence is ultimately determined by the scope of our inclusion. This is how evolution works, right? Evolution uses the accomplishments of earlier levels, always building on what came before. Just like our bodies, the structure of our bodies is a, is a perfect um, demonstration of how we're using every level of evolution in the very structure of, of our biological being. And the same can be said uh, as, as we come to understand that, that every stage of human history has evolved to solve problems. And even though some of those problems have been solved, the values that were used to solve those problems are, are necessary for the structure. In other words, if we completely eliminate or try to vanquish earlier the, the best of the earlier stages of value, the very structure that we depend on for our own cultural achievements will be undermined. So for example, the values of traditionalism, you know, that we can maybe identify as, you know, decency, you know, honesty, respect for authority and hierarchy, you know, res taking responsibility for oneself, these are important values that we continue to need. But these values themselves are woven together with the pathologies that we now need to avoid and, and, and transcend, like, uh, you know, ethnocentric morality or imperialism or, or fundamentalism, you know, intolerance. But in order to really be able to tease apart these, these pathologies from the important values we must carry forward, this way of understanding, this way of seeing, this evolutionary perspective helps us appreciate how we don't have to be repulsed or embarrassed by the values of either traditionalism or modernism. We can reclaim those values when we begin to understand the, 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 this, the evolutionary process that created the values and the evolutionary process that's now um, trying to include them at a higher level. And once we're able to understand this and include them within ourselves, for me, the question becomes, how are we going to live our lives? Uh, everything we do day to day to how we're conducting business, to how we're voting in politics as well. And so you've, you've ran uh, now in Zen, your company, you've worked with Celestial Seasonings, and now you have a, a new think tank to address these issues. I'm wondering, what are some of the main issues that we see in the newspapers each day that you're also addressing? Sure. Well, uh, my next enterprise that I'm forming with other uh, evolutionary activists in the field, including Carter Phipps, is this Institute for Cultural Evolution. And this is a think tank which is consciously attempting to apply the insights of the evolutionary worldview and integral philosophy to help bring about cultural evolution. Now, we're not trying to create a great awakening. We're trying to uh, um, use our you know, influence in the media and elsewhere to sort of try to, to contact and influence reachable demographic segments, pressure points, if you will, within the larger culture that can help uh, um, overcome some of the polarity, some of the stuckness that goes with the culture war that has, is a result of our current evolutionary conditions. So our first campaign um, with the think tank is to try to ameliorate climate change. Okay. And we're not offering our approach as a panacea, right? This is a problem that will be 
people will be working on. It's, it's, it's an emergent condition of modernism that needs to be managed. It can't be simply solved. We're not going to just um, do away with the developed world and its economy. We have to find a way to gradually uh, and, well, you know, as, as rapidly as possible, uh, make the developed world's economy, make the economy of modernism more sustainable, right? M many people in progressive culture, practically everyone in progressive culture, understands that that's an important goal. But if we expect that modernism and the modernist economy, uh, if, 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 if we don't respect that as its own evolutionary achievement, if we value the environment such that environmental values trump all other values, then the very people we need to persuade will be threatened. Indeed, their very identity as modernists will be threatened if it, the environmental movement is uh, merely a, a, a postmodern uh, uh, political issue. So one of the ways that this, this institute is trying to create cultural evolution is trying to build political will to address the prob problem of climate change in all the ways it must be addressed. And one of the things, one of the factors, you know, it's a very complex issue, but one of the factors that is preventing this formation of political will is this inherent evolutionary polarity that exists between modernism and postmodernism. You know, postmodernism's anti-modernism, that you can see it. If you go to the Bioneers Conference, right, these people are all, you know, they, they want to make the world a better place. They're very concerned about the environment and they're right. But because they don't appropriately value the achievements of modernism, the very people they need to persuade, the modernists, uh, are afraid to give them too much power or to sort of, uh, uh, you know, environmentalism can't be separated out from the postmodern worldview. It's an achievement of postmodernism. So we have to make postmodernism better to make environmentalism more appealing. What's the key opening for that conversation to have with the postmodernists? Right. What, what uh, allows them to be less defensive? Right. Well, uh, the, the theory itself explains that the opportunities for evolution are found where people have problems they cannot solve. And the, the postmodernists who are really concerned about uh, global warming have to admit that in the last five years, the poll numbers, the political will within the United States to try to uh, address the, the problem has gone down by 20 points. The Harris poll, you know, some of the other polls show that those who consider it not a problem of all, at all those numbers have gone way up, and those who consider it the most urgent problem, those numbers have gone way down. So environmentalists have to look in the mirror and ask themselves, you know, what are we, how are we contributing to our lack of success in building the political will that's going to be necessary? And so this integral perspective can sympathize with postmodernists. We certainly know that global warming is the major issue of our time, but we want to help them become more effective by helping them uh, work in greater harmony with a larger society instead of rejecting it and vilifying it. That is a wonderful place to end today's conversation. I've been talking with Steve McIntosh. He's the author of Evolution's Purpose, an integral interpretation of the scientific story of our origins. If you'd like to be in touch with Steve or want to learn more about his work, you can go to his website, stevemackintosh.com. That's M-C-I-N-T-O-S-H. Steve is also a co-founder of the new think tank, the Institute of Cultural Evolution. If you'd like to learn more about this work, please go to culturalevolution.org. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. My name is Glenn Sabera. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3452.
New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.